Good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us. If I don't know you, my name is Dan Halleck. I'm the lead pastor here, and thankful that you guys were able to be here with us tonight as we uh, celebrate this Good Friday. If you have a Bible, you'll uh, need it tonight, and if you don't, then uh, we'll uh, try to put most of the verses on the screen. <clears throat> Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So what, that means that the only way that God will forgive us for our sins, our rebellion, our wickedness against him, is through bloodshed. God's wrath toward the evil of sin cannot be appeased except through the death of the guilty. And the more that we encounter God through the Bible in, in our lives, uh, the more that we understand why this is, why, we must, uh, why he must punish wickedness this way. Uh, because all of Scripture and our lives are telling us that God is glorious and God is perfect and he is just, meaning he always does what is right. While at the same time, we are prone to sin. We humans are prone to wander. We are prone to worship everything except the one thing we were created to worship, which is God. And probably what's harder to understand than that reality is, is to try to understand why God shows incredible mercy to those of us who deserve everlasting death. In the Old Testament, we saw God show mercy countless ways. One of the ways he did this was by creating a sacrificial system through which he forgave those who trusted in the shedding of the blood of animals to forgive them on their behalf. Animals were slaughtered every day among the Jewish people. And on some, day, some days, thousands of animals were slaughtered to forgive our many sins against the one who loves us most. But all of those hundreds of thousands of animal sacrifices were never able to accomplish two things that God wants for us. First of all, God wants, uh, he wants forgiveness for all of our sins for eternity. And those sacrifices could not do it. Our sins are too many, and God is too holy for us to be reconciled by merely the sacrifice of animals. And secondly, those sacrifices did not have the power to give us hearts that desire God. Okay? In fact... Unfortunately, the more that humans offered sacrifices, the more that they felt like they had reason to keep sinning, to keep rebelling against God. And we see this even today, right? I mean, you think of Mardi Gras. What's the purpose of Mardi Gras? To sin as much as you can before Holy Week. That's the whole idea. Fat Tuesday, sin as much as you can before Holy Week. That's what this type of sacrificial system does for us. And in foolishness, even in the Old Testament, we humans thought, well, I can just live however I want to live then, and then I'll just go sacrifice an animal so that God will be happy with me. But that is not the kind of heart that God wants for us to have, and he's after our hearts. Scripture says that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. He, he wants us to love him. He, don't want, he doesn't want us to keep making sacrifices because we don't love him. See, it's a different mindset there. The Old Testament sacrificial system showed us that even the most perfect lamb found on earth and the most perfect flock 
cannot atone for our sins or change our hearts toward God. Instead, the forgiveness of our sins requires the death of a perfect, eternal lamb that must come from outside this place, from outside of this world. And what we read in God's word is that it was God's plan all along to give us a perfect lamb from heaven who would die for us, to forgive us of our sins forever, to purify us in God's eyes forever, and to bring us into God's presence to live forever. In the 8th century uh, B.C., about 750 years before Jesus Christ uh, ever came to earth, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah to tell us about the Lamb of God that he would send. In chapter 53, 7 to 12, Isaiah writes of Jesus, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So this perfect sacrificial lamb whom God the Father sent from heaven to earth was God's only son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Uh, God the Father sent his son to shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins so that we might have a new start, a new life with God. And so we read in scripture that Jesus was born without sin to a virgin. And he maintained his sinlessness throughout his childhood, throughout his teenage years, throughout his 20s, he never sinned. And in his early 30s, when the time had come for him to begin his public ministry and to reveal his true identity to the world, we read that his cousin, John the Baptist, pointed to him in front of a crowd and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of all who trust in him. When the Jews and the Romans nailed Jesus onto the cross, Jesus became our sin, and he suffered the entirety of the wrath of God toward our sin. And by doing this, he put our sin to death when he was put to death. And one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, whose name was John, who was the youngest of the disciples, 
He stood at the feet of Jesus at the cross when Jesus died. And years later, John would write down his eyewitness account of what happened that Friday, which we now call Good Friday because it is the, the day that Jesus shed his blood for us to forgive us and to bring us to God, which is good for us. We're going to read John's eyewitness account here in a second in John 19, 16 to 42, but let me pray for us. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for loving us so much that you gave us your only son, Jesus, to shed his blood on the cross to forgive us for our transgressions, our sins against you. Dear Jesus, we thank you for leaving heaven and for coming to earth and fulfilling all the demands of, of, of the law that none of us could ever fulfill. We thank you for fulfilling all righteousness on our behalf and for suffering on our behalf. You suffered more than we can possibly imagine so that our souls might be redeemed and our lives brought to you. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for coming to us and drawing us to you with power. We thank you for granting many of us repentance from sin and faith in you. And we just ask that as we read your word tonight, uh, please work powerfully among us. Please soften our hearts. Please make our hearts like yours. Uh, please give faith to those who might be hearing this in a new way and by the power of your Holy Spirit would be born again tonight. We ask that you would protect us from Satan tonight. We want your name to be lifted high in this place while we are together here. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. <clears throat> Let's start by reading John 19, 16b, which means the second half of the verse, through 22. So he, Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So remember that Jesus at this point had already been flogged probably twice, and the second flogging nearly to death. And now he was forced to carry on his back the crossbeam to which he would soon be nailed. And the crossbeam probably weighed 100 plus pounds, and it would have caused, obviously, excruciating pain as it weighed down on his bloody back. And eventually, Jesus carried his cross through the city as far as he could until he was too exhausted to take another step. And at that point, we read that the Roman soldiers forced an African man named Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross. 
According to Old Testament law, all executions had to take place outside the city gates. And so there was a hill called Golgotha just outside the Jerusalem city gates where the Romans crucified their most violent criminals uh, high atop this hill for everybody to see. So you would just kind of go to the city gate and you could look out and see Golgotha and see the crosses. And on that day, the, the Romans were crucifying two other men, it says, one on either side of Jesus. They were robbers. And the Romans crucified criminals not only to torture them and eventually to kill them, but also to show everybody else what would happen to them if they rebelled against the Roman Empire. And that's why Pilate put a sign on Jesus' cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. By, by doing that, uh, by calling him the king of the Jews, Pilate was writing his crime up there of, of stirring up trouble among the Jewish people. And at the same time, Pilate wrote that to mock the Jews because he knew that they would hate it if, if he called Jesus the king of the Jews because they didn't see him as their king. And so Pilate wrote that phrase, it says, in three main languages of the empire, uh, in Latin and Aramaic and Greek, so that everybody, Jew or Gentile, would know why Jesus was being crucified. And then John writes in verses 23 to 24, a, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So on Golgotha, the Romans likely uh, laid Jesus down onto the cross, onto this beam, and, and uh, nailed his hands and his feet to it. Sometimes they would tie their wrists to it, but from what we know later on, it sounds like Jesus was nailed to it. Uh, then they would have stood the cross up so that the entire weight of his body was hanging by these large nails. And they also probably nailed a, a little piece of wood underneath his feet uh, so that he could push up against it and lift his body uh, up enough to breathe. Because when you're hanging down like that, you can't breathe. And so if you push up, your lungs can get air in there to breathe. So that would prolong the suffering of the criminals. And it says uh, the soldiers, they probably took Jesus' clothes, clothes off. Uh, he was not wearing clothes when he was crucified. And the reason was to add to his shame. To add to the shame of, of being a criminal. And to embarrass him. And it says that he had been wearing about five items of clothing. And since there were four Roman soldiers, they each took one. Clothing was valuable back then. Um, and... He had one nice tunic that uh, did not have a seam, and it was worth m more money than the rest of his clothing, and so they rolled some dice to see which soldier would get it. And all of this took place to fulfill, they didn't know they were fulfilling, the prophecy of Psalm 22. If you've never read Psalm 22, which was written about a thousand years before, G before this happened, you really should, because it's basically an eyewitness account from Jesus's account on the cross of what it looked like as he was crucified. And then John writes in verses 24b to 27, and so the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother 
and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So while the Jewish leaders were mocking Jesus and telling him to prophesy and telling him to come down from the cross if he was such a miracle worker, and while the Roman soldiers were casting lots for his clothes, John says that he and four women were standing at Jesus' feet as he died. There was Jesus' mother, Mary. There was Jesus' aunt. There was Mary, the wife of Clopas. There was Mary Magdalene and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved and who wrote this gospel. Now, obviously, it would have been horrifying, to say the least, for Jesus' mother to see her son beaten and nailed to the cross. And Jesus, we read, looked down at her, who was standing next to John, and he said to his mom, he said, Mom, John is your son now. And John, my mother, is your mother now. Because Jesus' dad, Joseph, had probably passed away by this point. It doesn't appear, we don't read that any of Jesus' brothers showed up for the crucifixion. And so from that day forward, John took Jesus' mother into his own home. He cared for her like she was his own mother. And the Romans would often let criminals hang on the cross and suffer for days until they died, okay? Um, often they would not even bury the dead. It would, they would let the wild animals eat the bodies. But Jesus had already been flogged so badly, what we've read, is that he only hung on the cross a few hours before he died. John says in verses 28 to 30, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So Jesus fulfilled every prophecy about the Lamb of God who would die for the sin of the world. Uh, even in telling the soldiers that he was thirsty, Jesus was fulfilling David's prophecy in Psalm 69. Again, this was nearly a thousand years before Jesus came to earth and Jesus described his, uh, David describes Jesus' thirst on the cross. He says, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. It doesn't get any more specific than that. And John writes that after tasting that sour wine, Jesus said, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit. His spirit immediately left his body. Just like when we die, our spirits immediately leave our bodies. So what did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? Did he simply mean that his life on earth was over? That, that was part of it, right, obviously, but there was a lot more finished than merely his life on earth. This word finished also means completed, perfected. And when we think about what Jesus had really finished when he had spoken these words at the end of his public ministry, it should fill us believers with great joy because 
He did it out of his great love for us. And he did it out of his great love for God the Father. When Jesus said, it is finished, he had finished fulfilling all righteousness. Okay? He never sinned. He was our perfect, spotless Lamb of God. He had perfectly obeyed every demand of God's law on our behalf. Without his righteousness, he couldn't have been our eternal sacrifice. Without his perfection, we would not be able to wear the righteous robe that Christ gives us. When Jesus said it is finished, he had finished bearing our sin, meaning he became our sin. And he finished suffering God's eternal wrath for our sin. I praise God for that, don't you? The suffering is done for our eternal sin if you're in Christ. Every dimension of God's wrath, physical and spiritual, Jesus absorbed, and he absorbed all of it. He was finished bearing the wrath of God so that there is no more wrath, no more displeasure, no more punishment for God's people left over. Okay? Jesus, his suffering for our sin is finished. When Jesus said, it is finished, he'd also finished the forgiving work and the purifying work and the purchasing work of God for his church. Jesus' people are forgiven. They are purified forever. And when you read the Old Testament, it doesn't take long to see, wow, purity is a really big deal to God. And, and we're not very good at it on our own. We need a lamb of God to save us. And Jesus' people, through his death on the cross, are purchased. He bought us with his blood so that we belong to him now and forever. And Jesus has finished, uh, he finished the work required to rescue us also from Satan and from sin and from hell and from death, which According to Hebrews said, all humanity has, has been, it's been our greatest enemy. We're, we're scared of death. But Jesus took the stinger out of death. Jesus finished the work required to bring us to God forever, to know him, to live with him, and to enjoy his glory. And so as Christians, we trust in Jesus and in Jesus' work alone to save us. We do not trust in our own good works. God calls them filthy rags. And we do not trust in any other work except the work of Christ to bring us to God. When Jesus said it is finished, he had finally defeated the power of sin and Satan and hell. Jesus broke the chain of sin that enslaves us to Satan and to hell and to death. That's what it means when the Bible says that you're in bondage to sin, you're a prisoner to sin. And Jesus broke the chain of sin. Jesus took the stinger out of death. Jesus killed the sin. And Jesus put, his, uh, put Satan and his demons to shame while they thought they were putting him to shame on the cross. Jesus put them to shame. Jesus finished the work of defeating them. And we, an we anticipate his return again when it says he will punish Satan and his demons and all evil once and for all. Jesus is 
the Lamb of God who was slain on our behalf, and he finished everything necessary to save you and me forever. So will you look at him on the cross and trust him to save you? After Jesus died, John writes in verses 31 to 37, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So since the Sabbath was the next day and the Feast of Passover was the following week, the Jews did not want any criminals hanging up on the crosses during their festival. And so the Jews asked Pilate, who was, right, the Jews were under the Roman occupation, so they had to go to Pilate, the Roman governor, for permission. They asked Pilate if he would order the soldiers to break uh, Jesus' legs and the legs of the other two criminals being crucified. Because if their legs were broken, they could no longer push up on that little piece of wood underneath their feet that would allow them to breathe. And so they would die quickly, and their bodies would be taken down then before the Sabbath. And so Pilate agreed, and the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two criminals, however they did that. But when they came to Jesus, these professional executioners could see that he was dead already. And so they did not break his legs, again fulfilling the scripture. And just to verify that he was dead, though, they stabbed him in the chest with a spear, and he did not scream, he, his body did not move, he just bled because he was truly dead. And, and just as scripture had prophesied, Jesus was, was tortured terribly, but not one of his bones was broken. He was stabbed, he was pierced, just like the ancient prophets had prophesied. And John reiterates that, that all of these hundreds of prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus, not only to verify that Jesus is God, but also, he says, I'm writing this to give you faith to believe. He's pleading with you. He said, I'm an eyewitness. I was there. I know that 2,000 years from now, you guys aren't going to be able to see what I saw. But I'm telling you, believe it's true. For it is through trusting in Jesus that you will be saved. That's why he's saying, believe Verses 38 to 42 say, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. 
Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So we read two of Jesus' followers take charge of having him properly buried. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, he was part of the Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus to death. And he asked Pilate if he could bury Jesus' body in his own tomb. And Pilate agreed. And so Joseph and the Pharisee named Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night in chapter 3, supplied the linen cloths and the spices required to properly wrap and bury Jesus in these ancient uh, Middle Eastern burial garments. And the tomb was in the garden, and they placed Jesus' body inside the tomb of, Jesus, of Joseph. And Joseph was a rich man, and that was also another fulfillment of prophecy. So, according to the other gospel accounts, some of the women who were at the cross were also at the tomb. And they made sure that Jesus' body was prepared carefully and correctly. And in fact, because the Sabbath was coming so quickly, that's why they go back Sunday morning to finish the burial process. They don't go to see if Jesus is back from the dead. They don't even assume that. They're going back to finish preparing his body. But after Jesus' body was placed in the tomb, the Jewish leaders again go to the Roman authorities. They ask uh, Pontius uh, Pilate to, Will you we want you to close the tomb because there was a huge, uh, maybe 400-pound stone, either square or circular, that had to be put in front, of the, in front of the entrance to the tomb. We want you to put the Roman seal on it. They had the seal of the empire saying this is done by the Romans. And then also, we want you to guard the tomb over the weekend so that nobody, uh, none of the disciples can say that Jesus was resurrected. And so Pontius agreed, and he put up to 16 Roman guards who took turns watching over the body of Jesus over the weekend. And as we ponder all of this, uh, the events of that Friday remind us of many things that Jesus promised to his church during his life on earth. And one scene that it makes us remember was just actually only 24 hours earlier when Jesus commanded us to remember his death by taking communion together. Luke 22, 14 to 20 says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So if you're here tonight and you have trusted in Jesus, if you've looked to him on the cross and to his finished work for you, as the only hope you have for life after death and life with the Lord, 
forgiveness from your sin, forgiveness from your shame. If you've trusted in Christ's death and resurrection, then we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us tonight. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus for salvation before, right now is the right time to do that. If you want to be forgiven of your sin and shame, if you want to be freed by Jesus Christ, if you believe John's words, and if you believe Jesus' words, his commands to believe in him, and if you believe that he is who he says he is, then I encourage you to pray quietly to him and ask for his forgiveness. Ask him to save you. Tell him that you believe that he is God and that he died for your sin and he will gladly save you now. And if you'd like someone to pray with you, then I'll be sitting up here. I'd be happy to pray with you. Um, or I can, if it's a woman, I can connect you with another woman who would be happy to pray with you too. But uh, we are going to take communion now and we're going to do it a little differently than we normally do. Dylan will lead us in some worship music. We want to sing a few more songs of worship to Jesus. And whenever you feel led to take communion, um, then you can make your way to one of the communion stations. We have one here and two in the back. Um, and you can either uh, take it at the bread and the cup. You can either take it right here or you can go back to your seat and take it. Um, but the point of this being an opportunity for you to meditate personally on what Christ has done for you as you partake in his communion and as we do that as a church. Um, after we've sung a few songs, Dylan will close our time together. And um, if you're the first one up, feel free to take the cover off and place it to the side. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we thank you uh, for this bread and this cup which you've commanded us to take regularly as we remember your body that was broken on our behalf and your blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And that's, we just want that on, on our hearts and at the forefront of our minds tonight, God, what you've done for us and what was required for the forgiveness of our, our sins, God. And we also celebrate that you are alive and that although Friday, the worst sin ever that ever happened, happened against you, Sunday was coming. And so as we worship you now and as we talk to you privately, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would meet us here and we thank you and worship you for the life that you've given us by being our sacrificial Lamb of God. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.